I would like a hat like that. There are no such things as macra. No tangling with any crags, unless, of course, you have to tangle with any crags. Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony, and I am joined by animator, writer, producer, and occasional actor David Bush. You may have heard of David from his work on several of the official Doctor Who animations, and he's also worked on Metalocalypse, the Black Panther animated series, and his own short entitled Blake. We will be chatting about his love of Doctor Who, his career in film and animation, and how that led to him working on some of the recent Doctor Who output. David, thank you so much for joining me today. It's an absolute delight to have you on the show. Hello, uh, very happy to be here. Thank you. Let's start by talking about our very favourite subject, Doctor Who. How and when did you first discover the show, and how did your fandom develop from that point? Well, I can tell you down to almost the minute when I first discovered Doctor Who, and it was July 4th, 1982, at about, I'd say, 11.03 p.m., which was a Sunday night. I know it very well. I remember the date because it was the 4th of July here in America, and we just had a fireworks display down the street. And my older brother had a friend who was really into Doctor Who and kept telling him to watch it. But it was on at a very weird time in my area. Uh, I live in Iowa, and we got it on WTTW PBS out of Chicago. And they showed it at 11 p.m. Sunday nights, which is not a great time if you're a kid. I was 10 years old at the time, and not easy to convince your parents to let you stay up all night and watch this weird show. But it was summer, so we could stay up late, we could watch things, and we had just come home from this 4th of July fireworks show down the street, and it was a couple minutes after 11 o'clock, and my brother flipped through the TV guide to see if there was anything on, and suddenly he yelled, oh my god, Doctor Who's on! And he ran to the TV and turned it on to Channel 11, which is what it was at the time, and Revenge of the Cybermen had just started. And I just sort of tagged along out of curiosity, because I didn't really know anything about the show or what it was. Was, and I was instantly hooked. Even at the time, I realized that the special effects were low budget and it was shot in video and that sort of thing. But I didn't care about any of that because it was hugely imaginative and it had monsters and aliens and people running around in caves shooting at each other and this crazy guy in a scarf that was just instantly compelling and exciting to me. And so that was my first experience. It was, uh, they showed the omnibus edition. So it was the whole story, Revenge of the Cybermen. And I became an instant fan at that point. And my brother had had a couple Doctor who books, the Target books, prior to that. So he had some familiarity with the series in general. So the next day, I borrowed his book of The Web of Fear and started reading that, and then very quickly started buying up more of the books, uh, whatever I could find at the mall, and staying up late every Sunday night to watch the show. And it didn't take long before I was learning how to knit so I could make my own Tom Baker scarf. And Outstanding. I, I knew how to sew. I was a very crafty kid, so I started making plush canines, that sort of thing, and costumes. Uh, I made a collar. And Baker coat at one point, which was a little scrappy, but got the job done. And so I just, yeah, instantly fell in love with the show and just, it became like oxygen to me where I was buying everything I could find. I discovered Doctor Who magazine or Doctor Who Monthly, I think it was called then. And I started buying up all the back issues and I took the posters out of them and put them on my wall and just went crazy with it. Excellent. And of course, I'm, I'm assuming through the 90s and 2000s, you were avidly purchasing all the VHS and DVDs that you could lay your hands on 
and absorbing as much as you could that way. Exactly. Yeah. My parents bought our first VCR, which was a Betamax VCR in, I believe, 83 or 84, specifically so that I could record Doctor Who and stop having to stay up late on Sunday nights. <laughs> so I had, over the course of the 80s, I built up a Betamax collection of pretty much every existing story from Unearthed Child up through Revelation of the Daleks. Got it. Some point after that, the Betamax machine died. Uh, so uh, I couldn't play any of those anymore. But yeah, I had most of them uh, recorded on tape. And then, yeah, later on through the 90s, yeah, I got, I didn't get all of the VHSs, but I got a lot of them. And then once the DVD era started, I resumed collecting in earnest. And kind of around the time when the series came back to TV, I got back into it in a much more serious way and was going to conventions again and buying everything. And yeah, it became like a fan with a capital F. Awesome. So uh, do you have a favorite doctor, favorite story? Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> it's the question everyone has to ask, it is, even if you uh, don't have an answer. That's true. Uh, it fluctuates depending on my mood, I suppose. If I had to pick a favorite doctor overall, it would probably be Patrick Troughton. New series wise, I think I'd go Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi. But yeah, it, I love Davison. He was kind of my first new doctor because PBS was showing all the Tom Baker episodes and then they got around to Legopolis and then showed Peter Davison's first season. So that was my first experience of a regeneration and like a new doctor that I felt some ownership over it because it felt like I'm watching this, the new episodes of the show. This felt like a show that was from years ago when it was being rerun, but now suddenly, oh, this is modern. This is 80s. This has a new 80s style title sequence. This feels current. And so I think even though Tom Baker was my first doctor i'd probably put davison as like the one i have more personal ownership over if you if you will i think there's like uh, everyone has their first doctor and then the doctor they consider to be your doctor exactly that's how i feel about sylvester mccoy you know he was the, ah. the closest thing we had to a current doctor when i was discovering doctor who in the early 90s and even though Troughton, pertwee tom baker were the first doctors i saw mccoy very quickly became my doctor yeah understandable yeah so you mentioned the pbs out of chicago was that the pbs station with the infamous max headroom hack i believe it was yes did you see that when it happened and kind of think, what the hell is this? Or did you miss it? I don't remember seeing it, so I'm sure that I didn't. I think it might have been, I want to say that was late 80s or early 90s. So it might have been out of my regular taping of the show since by that point I had seen all the Tom Baker episodes like 8,000 times. So <laughs> I wasn't necessarily tuning in every night when they were on. And then I was in getting into college and theater and so i was often busy on late nights when that kind of thing was on i think that whole incident is fascinating because it's still a mystery to this day as to who did it and why um, yes. and it's somewhat passed into legend yeah i've watched the clips of it on youtube and it's just bizarre <laughs> yeah utterly utterly bizarre yeah just somebody who thought it was amusing and figured out how to hack into the station and i don't know people uh do strange things to amuse themselves but they've kept the doctor who community talking for years so i guess they did something right and you know obviously with what they were putting on screen i i would assume there were probably a large amount of narcotics involved in that incident too but that's yes, speculation I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> seems reasonable 
Let's pivot to your career. So you've obviously managed to make a success of yourself in in the film and TV industries. How did that come about? Well, I was always interested in filmmaking since I was a kid. I um, loved to read books about Ray Harryhausen and special effects and how they were done. I loved Godzilla movies and Star Wars and science fiction of all sorts. And I had a Super 8 camera that was my dad's when I was a kid. And so I learned how to make stop motion films in my backyard and just was always interested in that side of things. And as I got into high school, I got into theater and became an actor. And so I was in all the high school plays and eventually majored in theater in college. And after college, moved to Los Angeles to become an actor. That was the plan. I had some limited successes and things. I got into the Screen Actors Guild. I did a lot of extra work and I got little bits of voice work here and there some like brief on-screen moments in films, like just extra work, so no lines or anything, but little bits of things that kept me going. But after a couple years, realized I I wanted to be able to eat and pay rent and have a car, (laughs) and it wasn't getting getting the job done, wasn't paying the bills. So I, uh, I had a friend who was working at DreamWorks in the animation department, and he told me they were looking for production assistants and I should apply. So I did, and I got hired as a PA. And at first I was just making copies and going on lunch orders and, and, you know, running up light bulbs for people who need them and just, you know, the general stuff like that and got to know some of the people working on the productions. And after maybe six months or so, I got hired on one of their animated films as a PA, which was The Road to El Dorado, hand animated film that was DreamWorks' second big animated film. And like I said, I'd always been interested in animation and stop motion and the art of filmmaking. So I really took the animation as a production person and ended up working my way up the ladder at DreamWorks until I became a production supervisor. Uh, Worked on a few films there and then eventually left and went to a smaller studio. And after a few years, ended up at a place called Titmouse, which if you're not familiar with them nowadays, they've become pretty huge. They do the animation for Star Trek Lower Decks and Big Mouth and um, like lots of things. And anything that's on Netflix or Adult Swim, they've probably had their hand in it. And uh, it was kind of a small mom and pop studio at the time. And one of the big projects I worked on there was the Black Panther animated series for Marvel, which was a eight episode miniseries. This was years before Black Panther was in the movies or anything. And anyway, while I was there, The Invasion came out on DVD. And the two missing episodes of that, as you know, were animated for the DVD release. And that was really exciting to me, of course, seeing these missing episodes brought to life. And it was also very disappointing to me that at the time they sort of said, well, this budget came from somewhere else and we can't afford to make more of these. So enjoy this, but that's probably all you're going to get. But that started the wheels turning a little bit because I was working at a flash animation studio. And at the time, the exchange rate between the UK and the United States was very favorable to the UK because the dollar was about half of what Mm -hmm. the pound was at the time. So I kind of thought maybe I could make a pitch to get some of this work. Maybe we could do it at Titmouse. We could do it basically half price because the exchange rate was in our favor. So I, in some downtime that we had between projects, I edited together a little two-minute reel of missing clips and enlisted some of the animators to animate some of the clips for me to do a presentation. And we did some clips from Power of the Daleks, from The Web of Fear, Macro Terror, 
and it, it turned out pretty well, I thought. Anyone, if you go to YouTube and search Doctor Who Animation Test 2008, you'll find it. Uh, some things in it I cringe a little bit at now because I think I could do much better now, but uh, parts of it are pretty good. The character animation, I think, was excellent. I'm not an illustrator myself, so I, I can't really draw characters, but uh, some of the artists that I got to help with it are amazing and did a really great job on that. But anyway, so I ended up putting together a budget and I got that test in front of Dan Hall, who was running the DVDs at the time, and they ended up passing on it. And as it turns out, they ended up having their own plans for mm -hmm. animating further episodes through uh, Reign of Terror and Tenth Planet and a lot of those early animations came on the scene. So I sort of let the idea go. Eventually, I put the test out on YouTube and like, here's this thing that we worked on. Uh, it's not happening, but if you want to see it, here it is. And around this time, I ended up leaving LA and moving back to the Midwest, back to Iowa, because I was sort of burnt out on the expense and the traffic and the insane hours that we sort of worked in animation out there and moved back to Iowa. And shortly after moving back to Iowa, I got contacted by Ian Levine, who I'm sure you're familiar with. The infamous Ian Levine. Yes, indeed. Uh, I can tell you, every story you've ever heard about him is true. <laughs> I can believe it. I mean, he's yeah. done some great things for the show, but sometimes he doesn't help himself <laughs> with, his, yes. with his words. Uh, he's, he's definitely a character. I'll, I'll just put it that way. But he contacted me and had seen this test and wanted to see if I would collaborate with him on creating a full episode. And as, again, as sort of a pitch piece that we would create on spec and then offer to the BBC. And the episode he wanted to do was Mission to the Unknown. Mm -hmm. Because it was a standalone, all the characters in that, other than the Daleks, basically didn't appear anywhere else, didn't have a doctor, and figured one episode would be more achievable than trying to complete a longer missing story. So he raised some money, relatively small amount of money for this sort of thing, but it was enough that I could, again, pull in some favors from some very talented animator friends, and I did all of the editing, all of the compositing, and a little bit of the animation, and recruited this team to uh, help do all of the rest of the backgrounds and the animation. And we eventually produced an entire full missing episode, which is Mission to the Unknown. And I'm pretty proud of how it turned out. It was offered, Ian offered it to the people in charge of the DVD range. And again, they, they declined to take it for reasons which I don't know. Personally, I wasn't really involved in those negotiations. So it, again, didn't happen. But this was a fully produced piece that I produced in 16 by 9 and HD with the idea of future-proofing it in case it ever got a release at some point. Right. And uh, it eventually sort of got out into the wild and people have seen it and generally have gotten, I think, positive feedback on it for the most part. And that kind of ended there and sort of I've figured that, you know, my time animating Doctor Who had sort of played itself out. Did a couple of spec projects and then they never amounted to anything official, but it was fine because they were fun to work on and I learned a lot. But then a few years later, Charles Norton came into the uh, Doctor Who world and created Power of the Daleks, directed that uh, full animated reconstruction. And I was obviously very excited about that and uh, even went to see it in the theater here when it came out, which was very cool seeing 60s Doctor Who on the big screen. That's so cool when that happens. Yes, it's so uh, it's so weird that Doctor Who became this big mainstream thing yeah. in a way because it was always this like weird little show in the 80s that 
I liked and one or two of my friends liked, but basically people just mocked it in the States because, again, low budget effects and it was in the Star Wars era. And so people didn't understand why I love this weird little show from England. But then it became huge in recent years. The Moffat era with Matt Smith, for some reason, and I still haven't figured out why, really seemed to catch America's imagination, more so than the Russell T. Davies era, more so than the classic series. And then after Matt Smith, that interest has kind of trailed off again. Yeah, after the 50th, it kind of sort of normalized, I guess. Yeah, I think it was because the Matt Smith era was the first time that the show was really getting a major release over here. Like the Russell Davies era, it sort of got some reruns on Sci-Fi Channel or BBC America, but it wasn't until Matt Smith that it became kind of a centerpiece of BBC America's schedule and they were really promoting it. I would see billboards in L.A., with Doctor Who on them, like on Sunset Boulevard. And it's like, this is crazy. I don't know what timeline I've slipped into, but yeah. uh, there it was. I moved to the US in 2011. So just when it was all taking off. And oh, uh, sure. I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, I was used to seeing billboards when I lived in London, but now I'm over here and I'm seeing billboards for this quaint British show that I've always loved in the outskirts of Atlanta. This this seems very surreal to me. <laughs> right. It would be on bus posters and yeah. things like that. And you'd go to the mall and you'd see like the went to the Iowa State Fair and PBS had a booth there with a TARDIS and uh, Peter Capaldi, like life-size stand-up that you could take a picture with. I'm like, this is crazy. This is so weird. <laughs> but yeah, it happened. So yeah, uh, Power of the Daleks anyway. Uh, Charles Norton directed that. And then at some point after that came out, I received a message from him that he was interested in talking to me about the next project that they were doing. So I, I got on a Skype call with him and it turns out he had seen Mission to the Unknown and wanted to recruit me to work on Shada with him, which was a project that was already well underway, but they needed some extra help to get it done. And so I did a little test for him and he ended up hiring me to work on that for four months. And I did mainly lighting on the characters. So I did shadows and highlights on the Flash animated characters after the animation was done. And yeah, it was, uh, again, a really exciting experience to be working on an official Doctor Who production for the BBC. I had a BBC contract, BBC Studios contract, and was actually getting paid to work on a Doctor Who story, which was crazy. That's the dream. It is, yeah, it really is. <laughs> and the first Doctor that I'd ever seen, Tom Baker. The, the I think the greatest moment was when it was finished and Charles had sent me an early, well, not an early, but a, an edit of it before it was released so that I could see it. And he wanted to preserve the surprise at the end with the live action Tom Baker. He wanted me to be able to see that before it got out in the press, the spoilers got out. But uh, watching that and then seeing my name in the credits in the season 17 font, you know, That's in, so the, cool. in the time That's board, so it was cool. like so amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. Charles, by the way, is the nicest guy in the entire universe. He, yeah, he's just a delight to work with. And I couldn't even come up with a bad word to say about it. The project, it, like these things are still in the tradition of Doctor Who. They're not high budget and you have to get a lot of work done in a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. and was working long nights and crazy hours. But the team that I worked with, everyone was in you know, the UK uh, and I was just, I, I believe the only American working on it, but they were just a delight to work with. 
from top to bottom. Everybody was just great. And uh, yeah, it really was a dream come true to get to work on a real Doctor Who story. And I guess working on that in, I, I guess it was probably what, 2016, 2017? yeah. That's probably a lot easier to work cross-functionally with a team in the UK than it would have been 10 years before since we have much better internet now and you can put things up there in the cloud, pull them down, do your work, upload them back and almost in real time. That's exactly how it worked, yes. They had an FTP site and would put up finished animation files for me. I would download them on my end and then I would have like lighting keys that had been done that showed, you know, what they wanted the light and shadows to look like on this scene. And then I would take those keys and then I would animate them on the moving character. But yeah, and then when I was finished, I would render out a, a little QuickTime movie of my scene and then I would re-upload it and Charles and the team would look at it and approve it or give me notes uh, on things they wanted changed. And yeah, we just worked like that. If we needed to get in on a call, we would jump on Skype or something. And um, yeah, it's remarkably smooth. And it was a nice preview for the way the world would become in a few years after that. Yeah. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, I haven't worked anywhere other than in this little office in my house for uh, 14 months now. Same. Which is crazy. Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to feel uh, <laughs> when and if we ever go back to working in like a real office. But yeah, but it was a, yeah, it was a lot of work, but it was a delight uh, working with Charles and everybody. And after Shada finished, Charles also recruited me to work on the Macro Terror, which was the next release. And that was a bit shorter term because they had subcontracted studio Sun and Moon, who did a lot of the animation, uh, like the day-to-day -day work of the animation on that. And so they did a lot of uh, or some of the lighting and things, but I was brought on to do more specific directional lighting or more moody scenes. And I, I worked on that uh, six weeks, I think, something like that. And again, it was really exciting to work on a Patrick Troughton story because, as I said earlier, he's probably my favorite doctor from the original run. So getting to work on a piece with him was very cool. And that release in general, I, I know there was a little bit of controversy around a certain scene that was cut, but beyond that, when we watched that one, we loved the way it was reimagined for the animation. We tended to do the black and white versions rather than the full color versions just to try and keep the authenticity of the time. But sure. the opportunity to take a story where no episodes have survived and reimagine it and you can do things that you couldn't necessarily do without taking you out of the action with, with a story that has a couple of surviving episodes. So making the macro much more mobile and reimagining the city and, and all that kind of thing. We love that one. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I'm a proponent of if you don't have existing episodes to really tie yourself to and match, then I very much a proponent of make the sets bigger, make it more impressive, make the creatures more frightening if you can. And it's a delicate balance because fans can get very specific about things like that. Like some of them want this to be an exact perfect replication of what the original was. And some of them are like, no, nah, just take the audio and do whatever you want. Go crazy and make it better, make it modern. And it's always a, a very fine line between pleasing the fans who want it to be a reconstruction, pleasing people who think this should be a modern production and it should reflect the abilities we have now. 
That's one of the things I really appreciate about what they're doing with those Blu-ray releases now in that you have your options. You can watch it in color. You can watch it in black and white. You can watch the recon being done by mm-hmm. Derek Handley if you if you want to and, and you prefer that. I think just having those various options on how you experience the story is really cool. And, and if the Macro Terror, for example, ever comes back, I don't think the animation will be hidden by the BBC. I think it, they'll still include that because that's another way to watch the story and watch your reinterpretation of it. Right. I agree. Yeah. And um, the photo recons that are on these now, if you're a purist and you want it to be as close as possible to the original version, like that's there. The audio is completely unedited. It is, And you can watch it with the narration or without, uh, I believe, on most of these. And so that's pretty much the most pure form you can get if you want to watch it with a little bit of interpretation, then the animation is maybe more you're seeing, or you can choose mix and match and watch both ways. Um, I think, yeah, the faceless ones was really interesting that they animated the two existing episodes as well. Yeah. I think largely because BBC America wanted to broadcast it as a full piece, but it's, as you were saying, it's a cool way to give fans different ways to experience the same episodes. And that one has the animation widescreen color, or you can watch it in four by three black and white with the existing episodes in between and the recon is there of the missing episodes. So it really is giving fans an amazing amount of choice. Yeah. So speaking of BBC American, and we'll come back to the power of the Daleks in a minute, but my understanding is what changed between the Dan Hall era with animating onesies and, and twosies of missing episodes to now where we get full stories. I think, and you may know more about this than I do, that came down to BBC America pitching in on the funding. Yes, that is correct. And it seems like, I don't know what's going on at the moment. There are rumors of more stories being produced, but that's definitely the case that BBC America has been kicking in funding and then broadcasting these as a way to fund them and to give them some new Doctor Who related content in between seasons of the new show. Yeah. So yeah, that is kind of an amazing boom for fans that these things which were either not going to be done at all or were going to be done purely by talented fans working at home putting things out unofficially but now there's you know an actual network that is chipping in some money and making six part animated reconstructions possible yeah shada i mean the bbc america broadcast was the first and i think only time shada's ever been shown on television which is kind of amazing that this missing story finally had a broadcast. And that means you got your name on TV in the season 17 font. That's awesome. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you know, I can, I can die happy now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about The Power of the Daleks, because, of course, you worked on the special edition rather than the first one. So how yes. did that come about I know that obviously Doctor Who fans, we like to get upset when we get things released time and time again. So do you know much about the background as to how we got a special edition? And then obviously, what did you do on it? How did you get involved? I'm assuming that was Charles Norton again. Yes, exactly. And to your point uh, that if uh, (laughs) Doctor Who fans don't like having things released over and over again and buying them over again, you're in the wrong fandom because (laughs) that is what we do. We We get the Target book, we get the VHS, we get the DVD, we get the Blu-ray, we get the special edition Blu-ray. Like, I think I've bought Spearhead from Space something like eight or nine times at this point. 
oh yeah oh me too yeah <laughs> and then again yeah. when they eventually release season seven as part of the collection <laughs> exactly no i'll have that like a thousand times so yeah you're in you're in the wrong fandom if that's a problem for you but um yeah power of the daleks i didn't do a lot on that largely because what they needed was somebody who was more proficient in flash than i am i'm just kind of i could barely hold my own on simple things in flash uh, i'm more of a after effects compositor editor is more what i consider myself but how the revisit came about is that the original animated power of the daleks had a very very tight schedule and budget um much tighter than charles and the team would have preferred and in fact as they were halfway through production their schedule got slashed by a month because somebody realized they could release this on the anniversary of the original story's airing but that would mean it needed to get done sooner so they were already on a tight schedule and budget and then they got a month taken away from them and so everyone on the team i think felt that they had to make some compromises to get it done and there were some things that they weren't completely happy with and Charles I believe lobbied for the funds after that and Shada and McIntyre had been a success lobbied to get a special edition kind of revamp of it so he wanted to go in and fix a lot of the little animation things that had bothered him I think episode one in particular was rushed more than some of the others were and so that was a part that they wanted to spend a good amount of time finessing the animation, making it more fluid, using what they've learned in the last couple productions to make it as good as possible. They did some color tweaks. I believe everything was recomposited from scratch. So all of the animation at least got a lighting pass and a color pass on it. And there were lots of little fixes throughout. So yeah, again, Charles called me and asked me if I'd be available to work on it. And I did a little bit of work, but as I said, like Flash isn't really my strong point. So I felt like it wasn't quite my skill set for what he needed because it was essentially going into the original animation files and tweaking them, reworking them. And at the time, I was really busy at my other job, which is my full-time job. So whenever I've worked on these, I've been working my full-time job 40 or more hours a week and then doing this at night and on the weekends, which is very exhausting and yeah, stressful I'm sure. and time-consuming. So yeah, at the time, I felt I wasn't quite the right person for what he needed, and I was kind of just feeling like I didn't have the time for it then. So I worked on it a little bit and uh, worked on some of the character models and a scene or two, but I ended up having to bow out of that one. Honestly, I was surprised that when I bought it and watched it, I was kind of surprised that I got a credit in it because I had to drop out relatively early. But like I said, Charles is a just fantastic guy. And he's like, no, you worked on it. You're, you're getting a credit on the episode you worked on. I'm like, awesome. Thank you. Knowing about these issues around time compression or removing things for budgetary reasons has happened in the Macro Terra, I feel really bad for Charles because I think he bears the brunt of the criticism for that. And I think these are creative decisions that had to be made in order to get the project realized. And he gets a lot of flack from the fan community over some of those decisions, which really he had no choice in the end with. And, and you saying he's just the nicest guy makes me feel even worse for him. You know? Right. <laughs> I mean, I know he's a guy who understands fandom very well and has been part of it forever. And so he gets it that fans can be very particular about what they're expecting, what they want, what they think it should be. But yeah, I, 
I know you can get a hundred positive reviews on something and two really negative ones. And the negative ones are the ones that kind of stick in you and can frustrate you more. Yeah. I think even if there are at times compromises that have to be made on these or budgetary decisions that like that scene from macro that that was cut. I don't know. I think it's better to have 98% of the macro terror animated than none of it. I agree. And, you know, the recon is there with the scene in full if you want to see it. Again, it's a pity that these things have to happen. It'd be great if these got Pixar-level budgets and the sky could be the limit. But it is what it is sometimes. It is a, a niche product within a niche fandom of Classic Who. And so I think, honestly, we're incredibly lucky to get any of these. Mm -hmm. So to get some that maybe have, you know, a little bit of, you know, decisions that nobody's thrilled with but that have to be done to get it made i think it's still amazing that we're getting these at all i mean if if someone had told me 10 years ago that we would get a full four-part story animated but the sacrifice was they would cut two minutes i would have bitten their hand off for that because at the time again it was onesies twosies the reign of terror the moon base we didn't even get an animation for the underwater menace when they released that right you right know, what they did with the macro terror was would have been a dream. I would have loved to have seen that. I'll put it like that. But yes. I get why, and I'm not mad at it. Exactly. Yeah, I understand it's disappointing. And in an ideal world, you would be able to have that scene in. You would be able to... I just kicked my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> I get I get so passionate talking about this. Um, in an ideal world, you would, you would be able to do everything and you'd be able to do it as the uh, most perfect version of it that you saw in your head when you read the Target book. But yeah, in reality, sometimes these things happen. And the fact that they're making these and they just seem to keep making them and they must make enough money to yeah. be worth budgeting. And I think it's really allowing fandom to reevaluate some of those lesser known missing stories, the Macro Terror, the Faceless Ones, Fury from the Deep. Those tended to be overlooked just because they were mostly missing. Right. I think people are starting to realize what a fantastic story something like the Macro Terror actually is. Exactly. And I think it's also very encouraging that they've chosen to animate things like Macro Terror and Faceless Ones before what must surely be higher ticket kind of stories like Evil of the Daleks or Daleks, uh, Master, Daleks Plan. Master Plan. Yeah. Yes. That... It, I don't know, it's, I don't have any insider knowledge on this, but it says to me that they plan to keep going mm -hmm. and that they're not afraid to put out ones that on the surface may seem less commercially obvious than the wheel in space with Cybermen or whatever. One that I'm excited about that if it ever gets the animation treatment is the Space Pirates. And precisely because there is almost no visual reference material for it, there's no telesnaps, there's very few photographs of the missing episodes. And I think that lends itself to just interpreting it however the animation team would want to. You can make it look any way you want. It can be as grand or as big or as exciting with the space battles as they want. And you're not tied to much of anything there is the existing episode but that's pretty self-contained mm -hmm. and i think even in this case they could more or less disregard the visuals in that if they want to and just do a grand space opera kind of yeah. project with it if it if we get that far so we just uh we just finished our 
watch through of the Space Pirates and recorded it about a week ago, our episode on that. And we did not think highly of that story. And I think to your point, if it could be reimagined as a grand space opera where the sky's the limit in animation, obviously within budgetary constraints, but they, you know, that something impressive could be done with, as you say, the space battles, the the sets, etc., that, that wouldn't have been done on TV. I think that could really help to reevaluate that story as well. Agreed. And um, yeah, it's not one of the jewels of the Troughton era, I don't think. Although, you know, you never know if it were recovered, what little acting moments you might discover that uh, we didn't know about. But I think things like space battles and grand visuals, once you've created the designs for those, I think those are a lot easier to realize in animation than characters running around and fist fighting. I think something like the Highlanders would be much more difficult than the space pirates for example. So much tartan. So much tartan. And (laughs) you've got people running around on the moors, sword fighting, and that is far more difficult to do convincingly than spaceships zooming around and shooting at each other and people sitting at controls flying those ships and talking over communicators. So I think you could make something more interesting out of the space pirates than perhaps it would have looked like originally, but sadly we don't know. So we talked about the Highlanders and the Space Pirates. Obviously, there are still a fair few stories with missing episodes that haven't yet been animated. If you could have your choice of any of them to work on, which would be your dream project and why? And obviously, you've already talked about the Space Pirates, so we'll pull that one out of of your options. (laughs) I would say, and again, I have no insider knowledge of this at all, but there have been rumors that the Abominable Snowman is being worked on. That's probably my favorite of the partially missing stories, and I would love to see that get the grand animated treatment. It's funny that back in the 80s, in the Target era, when that was how most people relived these old stories that even the the existing ones, it was very difficult to see them if you could at all, but that was considered like one of the classics, and it was one of the best Target books. And when the existing episode was finally released on VHS, I think it held up in every way. And since having listened to the audio, like, I think it's just, it's moody and creepy and interesting. And I think, again, it's my most wanted missing story to be recovered, but also for animation, that would be my number one pick. I know there are all sorts of rumors swirling about that. And um, there's another story, I forget which one they're talking about evil i think think it's evil Evil of the daleks yeah both of those make sense because they're getting closer and closer to animating everything missing from seasons four and five which would in a couple of years lend itself well to releases for the collection exactly so you may well get your wish and, and i hope that someone reaches out to you to ask you if you want to work on that well yeah that that would be great (laughs) charles norton are you listening (laughs) yes exactly Uh, So obviously we've talked a lot about Doctor Who and and that's the core theme of the podcast, but are there any other projects that you're you're working on or have recently worked on and put out to the wider world that you'd like to talk about and perhaps promote a little bit? Certainly. Yeah, my most recent personal project was a film called Blake, which in in recent years uh, I've been making a lot of live action short films and that's kind of become my creative outlet for my own work. And that was the most recent. Uh, last year, it played in a lot of film festivals, quite a few of them in the US, and then some in the UK, South Korea, sort of all over the place. And I'm very proud of it. It's 12 minutes long, and it has a little bit of Doctor Who influence just in that it's a time travel story. And it's a time travel story about a man played by me 
who is grieving over the loss of his beloved cat. And he gets a sort of magical opportunity to go back in time and spend a week with his cat, Blake, while his cat was still alive and healthy. And so it's sort of a bittersweet, funny, kind of heartwarming little drama. It's on YouTube or uh, on, I have a website that has samples of my work from various realms, which is just davidbushfilms.com. So you can find it there. And just a note for the listener, we'll be putting a link to those in the show description. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Also, right now I'm working on another film, which is sort of my most ambitious film to date in a lot of ways. And it's called Stopped Motion, The Story of Gulp. (laughs) Let me uh, set up that title a little bit. Back when I was a kid and I was making stop motion films in my backyard, I created this character named Gulp, who is a dinosaur, a little claymation dinosaur who would eat little Lego buildings and fight other dinosaurs. And back in LA, when I was working in animation and became a little more, I guess, of a filmmaker in the modern days, I brought this character back and made a series of these little short films combining live action and claymation, mostly with me playing this sort of a version of myself fighting against this dinosaur. And I made a a bunch of series of those that are increasingly silly and ridiculous. And when the pandemic started, I had written another film that I was looking to shoot last year that would have involved a whole bunch of actors in a set for several days at a time. And the pandemic sort of put an end to that because couldn't be in a room with anybody. So my wife and I decided uh, we came up this with this idea of doing a mockumentary about Gulp and his career in Hollywood as a live-action claymation dinosaur star. And so we shot interview footage with her and myself as the people who have been in these films over the years. And then I've been working for the past year on animation for it and flashback scenes and I'm incorporating real footage of myself from the 80s on Super 8 and clips of things that I've worked on throughout from basically like 1981 until today into this it's going to be like a 45 minute film about my friendship with this dinosaur how we met as kids grew up conquered Hollywood and then as these things go uh, our creative partnership fell apart and we had a falling out and then I won't spoil the ending but it's it has a happy ending so yeah I've been I've set up a little green screen in my home office here where I do the animation of the claymation characters against it and then composite it with the live action and it's filled with parodies of films and homages to monster movies of all sorts and hoping to have it finished by early summer and start submitting that to film festivals and eventually it'll be on my website as well. That sounds wonderful we'll keep a lookout for that. Thank you. It's been a great project during the pandemic because pretty much everything that I need to do for it, I can do in my house or outside in the area or just as stop motion creatures. So I can do that anywhere. But yeah, it's one of those cases of the necessity creating opportunity. So I might not have made this film if I hadn't been stuck in the house for over a year bored with nothing to do and I'm like what can I make that I can make at home that would be fun and also that would be something sort of light and positive and silly that is the kind of media I'm drawn to right now like modern times have been so dark over the last year that I find myself gravitating towards things that are just cozy and stress-free and kind of silly so hopefully this will come out 
as the pandemic is waning, hopefully ending, and uh, we'll give people something fun and silly to take their mind off things for 45 minutes. Well, that sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. So looking forward to seeing that when it's available. Thank you. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Well, David, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been oh, my pleasure. absolute pre- pleasure to talk to you and, and to have you on the show. Oh, it's been great talking to you. And we will be back next time with our next regular episode where we will be tackling the first half of the war games. But in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. Thanks, everyone. You have been listening to a bonus episode of Watches in the Fourth Dimension with myself, Anthony Williams, and special guest David Bush. This episode, cozy, stress-free, and kind of silly, was recorded on Saturday the 10th of April 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available through your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D. You can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, while there may still be 97 missing episodes, there are dedicated fans out there doing wonderful things to help you enjoy the magic of those stories.